0: Uh, my name is Ben Milner, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're really glad you're here. Uh, the city of Winston-Salem is very kind uh, to provide me background music tonight, and you'll notice that the songs are synchronized with the different points in my sermon. Um, just to listen up for that. Uh, we're looking at the, uh, the patriarchs uh, in this sermon series on the book of Genesis, Genesis 12-50. through 50. And if you don't know, the patriarchs are um, Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and Joseph. We're looking at Jacob now. And uh, we've looked at two, uh, two stories from Jacob's life. In the first one, we saw that uh, he had a very difficult family life. He was unwanted. Uh, his older brother Esau was the favorite child of the father. It wasn't even subtle about it. It was very obvious. The father pretty much told uh, Jacob that Esau is my favorite child. So Jacob felt very unwanted, and uh, he became a manipulator and a schemer. And he essentially, he stole his older brother Esau's Birthright. So he took Esau's place, stole his blessing, and uh, manipulated his dad, and was on the run because his older brother wanted to kill him. So he had to leave his parents' house and travel uh, 500 miles north to his uncle's house, Laban. And on the way, God graciously met Jacob, and He said, basically, to Jacob, He said, "I know that you stole that blessing. I know that you stole the birthright, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, and I'm going to bring my kingdom through you." You see, the patriarchs were the uh, the leaders, of the, the tip of the spear of this movement, this movement to rescue the world through bringing the kingdom. Uh, God, his plan was to bring his kingdom into this dark empire of this world and to liberate the world and rescue the world through this kingdom. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph were the tip of the spear. They were the beginning of the family that would create the kingdom of God. And so God comes to Jacob and he says, I know you stole that blessing, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. And you're going to be the father of many nations. And you're going to be blessed, and you're going to bless the world. So that was last week, this amazing act of grace. This week we see that uh, Jacob has gotten to that place uh, 500 miles north in Haran where his uncle Laban lives. And when he gets there, uh, God begins this process of discipline. So this is a a hard, in many ways a very hard passage. Uh, Jacob endures a lot of suffering here. And um, one thing I'm going to be telling you is that God disciplines you as well. This song that, uh, that they sang earlier, uh, "I asked the Lord that I might grow," is, I think, one of the best songs I've ever heard on, on what it means for God to discipline you. So I'm going to kind of go back through the lyrics a little bit, but um, this passage is all about the discipline of Jacob, and even though he gave Jacob the birthright, that doesn't mean God decided he's not going to do anything with, with Jacob. Grace is not uh, opposed to discipline. Uh, God shows us all this grace, but at the same time, he also disciplines us, and he humbles us, and he makes our life hard in order to teach us, in order to bring us closer to him. So I want to look at the the discipline of Jacob, number one, but also I want to look at the way that that discipline leads to redemption. In this case, the redemption of Leah, or Leah, uh, his, his, his wife. So the, the, first of all, the, the discipline of Jacob, and then second of all, uh, the redemption of... Uh, of Leah. So those two points. Uh, first of all, like I said, Esau, the older brother of Jacob, is trying to kill Jacob. So the parents very sensibly say, uh, Jacob, you need to leave here and go to your uh, uncle Laban's house 500 miles north. So Jacob goes off on his own, never left home before this trek 500 miles. I don't know how he, you know, what kind of directions he used, uh, how he was uh, protected himself from all of the the danger on the way. But anyway, he. it says in verse 10 that um, basically God performed a kind of a miracle of providence. You probably had this happen to you where somehow the very person you needed to run into, you ran into at just the right time. A lot of us have had that experience. I've had that experience. Well, that's what happens to Jacob. God is watching Jacob and Jacob on his way north. He runs into the Laban's family, his niece. And look at verse 10. Well, it's actually not something that we read, but if you have a Bible, in verse ten it says, "As soon as Jacob saw Rachel, that's his niece, his uh, his niece. Um, no, that's his cousin. I'm sorry. Uh, as soon as he saw Rachel, he rolled the stone from her well. So she's a shepherdess. She's trying to sh- uh, to give her sheep something to drink. Uh, Jacob sees the sheep. There's a big stone over the well, and he runs over to that stone and he pushes it away. This great act of strength." He rolled the stone from her well. He watered her flock of sheep. So not only did he roll the stone away, he dipped his bucket down into the water. He he gave her sheep water to drink, and then it says he kissed her and wept aloud. And one of the commentaries said uh, this was a superb entry uh, into the life of Laban's family. I can kind of imagine him like taking a dramatic bow, you know, and uh, like behold, the man of your dreams is here. Uh, He clearly was in love with. Rachel immediately. As soon as he saw her, uh, and it says later that um, when he worked for her, those seven years were were as if a day because he was so in love with her. So the second he laid his eyes on his cousin, I know that's strange, it is his cousin, um, but maybe there are several uh, cousins removed, don't know all the details there, but he, he falls in love with her and as soon as Jacob falls in love with Rachel, Rachel's dad Laban, notices what's happening and the wheels of his mind start turning. And it says in verse 15, this sounds like a very nice thing for Laban to do, but it's actually, there's a scheme behind this. Uh, He says to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? No, tell me, what, what shall your wages be? I'll pay you whatever you want. You serve me, you're obviously a very strong man. You know how to water sheep. You know how to roll back a stone? Uh, Tell me your wages. And of course Laban knows exactly what Jacob's gonna say. And Laban is setting a trap at that moment. So in verse 16 we read that Laban had two daughters, Leah the older and Rachel the younger. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. We don't know exactly what weak means, but clearly the contrast, the juxtaposition with uh, the beauty of Rachel means that she was not so beautiful. So Leah the older, Rachel the younger, uh, Laban saw that Jacob was looking at Rachel, he could see the look in his eyes, and then he knows that he has him. And he knows that when he asks that question, you know, tell me what I I can give you, like what's, he he knows the very second that that Jacob is going to ask for Rachel's hand in marriage. And sure enough in verse 18, Jacob says to Laban, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, which is just an incredibly uh, ridiculous offer from a starstruck lover which Laban knew. Laban knew that that's exactly what Jacob would want. So Laban is thinking, as one uh, Tim Keller, one preacher, put it, this is what Laban is thinking. This guy's a great shepherd. Uh, He knows what he's doing with sheep. Uh, He is desperate for Rachel. I will make a lot of money on him, and I will offload my undesirable daughter. That's the scheme that Laban has in mind. And he knows from the second that he sees Jacob looking at Rachel. He knows that uh, he is going to make this switch on his wedding night, which we'll look at in a second here. He concocts this scheme and he plays this horrible trick on Jacob. So in verse 20 it says Jacob served seven years for Rachel as a shepherd. So that's a long time. Seven years, no wages. And it's, they seemed to him but a few days because he was so in love with Rachel. He can't wait. Uh, in fact, the the. The statement, he says, now let me go into her, is kind of crude. Uh, it's pretty aggressive. So that actually shows Jacob in a bad light. But that just shows kind of how desperate he is. Let me go into her now, he says. But anyway, Laban throws this giant wedding. He invites everyone in. It says in verse 22, he gathered together all the people of the place and he made a feast. Giant wedding for the big day where Jacob is going to marry uh, Rachel, the beautiful Rachel. And possibly uh, he spiked, well, he probably didn't need to spike any drink. He just Maybe he served really strong alcohol, really the, the strongest wine of all. Uh, because there's suddenly, in verse 23, there's this bait and switch, where it says, in the evening, this is the first night of their marriage. Um, I don't know what kind of state Jacob was in at this point, but it says, in the evening, Laban took Leah, Leah, uh, the older daughter and he brought her to Jacob and Jacob at this point could not know exactly what I know they wore veils but that would not have been enough to explain what happened here that Jacob did not understand what was going on because it says Jacob went into her and that is a biblical euphemism for more than going into the door of a tent but in the morning it says behold (laughs) it's like big exclamation point it was Leah or Leah it was Leah So Jacob wakes up. You know, I've heard about people waking up after a party and not knowing who that is in bed with them. I've heard about that having. I've never heard that about a wife, though. You know, he wakes up in the morning, and all of a sudden, in the bed next to him, it is not the one he thought he was going to marry. It's Leah. Behold, it was Leah. And when he finds out, uh, he tears out of bed. He, who knows, he's probably got almost nothing on. He runs, uh, he leaves Leah weeping in a ball, you know, curled up in a ball, weeping. He runs to Laban and he says in verse 25, What is this you've done? I wanted Rachel and you knew that. And then you can imagine Leah overhearing this. You know, her dad's uh, very familiar duplicity. And uh, this is what Laban says to Jacob. Well, in our country, you know, as you should have known, we always give the younger before the firstborn. So, um... Of course, Jacob didn't know that, and Laban didn't tell him that, and he's basically just using her Rachel as bait to get uh, Jacob to work for him and to take Leah off his hands. So this completely rocks Jacob's world, of course, because the woman of his dreams, who he had served seven years to get, and who he thought about every single day, you know, he, who made his life worth living, and you might have experienced that before. You've got kind of, you've fallen for someone that hard. Well, that person is now gone. That person is gone, and um, you might have had that feeling too of just absolute heartbreak, where the person that you thought you were going to marry, the person that uh, you were married to, and they left you, or just even someone you were dating, and it's all gone suddenly. And you can imagine just Jacob's world falling apart. And this is where we get into uh, God's discipline. Uh, God is, is basically he's he's with a crowbar of Laban. He is, you know, he is. Um, Prying away the rotten foundation of, of Jacob's house. You know, one board after another. Uh, he's pulling them out because of this rotten foundation that Jacob's life was built on, uh, this, this idol of romance, that he had to have Rachel. Because uh, basically, Jacob has met his match here. We saw last week and the week before that Jacob is a con artist, he's a schemer. And now he has met his match in a greater schemer a greater con artist whose name is Laban, his uncle. And uh, this is biblical justice. So in Psalm fifty-seven six, the psalmist writes my enemy has fallen into the pit that he dug for me. That's a common theme. In the, it's kind of like boomerang justice. You know what goes around comes around. If you throw out the boomerang it comes back and hits you. You fall into the pit that you dug for someone else. And that's what's happened here to Jacob. That he got out conned uh, as someone who was a schemer uh, by Laban. So imagine, you know, you are someone, imagine that you've had uh, the upper hand in every relationship you've ever been in. Every romantic relationship, you're always the one who pushed the boundaries. You know, you knew how to use your tongue to woo and to coax and seduce, but now you're in a relationship where the person has out-wooed you and has seduced you and has coaxed you into doing things you don't want to do, and now you're in the palm of their hands. And and they abandon you and they crush, your, they crush your heart. Or think about if you're, uh, if so, so you're at work and you're always, you're always trying to vie for power and brown nose and climb the ladder and you work your way over a lot of people underneath you and then all of a sudden someone comes along and upstart and they do the same thing to you. God does this to us all the time, uh, where we meet our match and we see for the first time what we have been doing to other people all along. And that's kind of where we get into this, this song. Where we, we ask God that we will grow in grace and love and faith. And instead of just answering that prayer, it says that he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. A lot of times that's how God disciplines us. Is he, um, he aggravates my woe. He crosses all the fair designs I schemed. And casts out my feelings and, and lays me low. And so when that happens, we think God has abandoned me. And God's saying, no, I am here and I'm disciplining you. I love you and I am tearing away your rotten foundation, your idol. I thought that I was uh, the great debater, the great intellectual when I was 21 uh, who could out-argue anyone. And I thought that tearing down Christians and Republicans was a bit of fun, which I did on a regular basis. And then I met my match. And I met somebody... Uh, who could out-argue me and outwit me. And God humbled me. God humbled me. Um, because this person poked holes into every single part of my life, not just my worldview, but my heart. And I remember sitting there in the, um, in the chapel in The Sound of Music, if you've seen that movie, in uh, Salzburg, in Austria, and I was in that chapel uh, where they get married, and I was, I, I, something hit me when I was looking at the, the art in that chapel about how petty I was, Uh, how small and foolish and cruel, and driven by pain and insecurity, all of my attempts uh, to debate other people and to best other people verbally, I saw how how foolish it all was, and it kind of came crashing down. And God is saying to you right now, you know, I am allowing some pain in your life, perhaps. And I'm allowing that pain to show you who you are and what you do to yourself, and maybe what you do to other people. And you've got to ask yourself, you know, what is my version of the scheming of Jacob? And um, how is he disciplining me in my life? It's a really important question to ask yourself. How is he disciplining me right now in my life? Because God is too gracious to leave us alone. And 14 years later, after seven years working for Leah and seven years working for Rachel, somewhere along the line, Jacob sees himself. In Laban, And he sees his scheming in the person of Laban. And he one day comes upon his beloved Rachel who is weeping. And she is completely broken by her infertility. Because she can't have a child. And Leah is having all these children. And, Le- and Rachel is broken by this completely. Also breaking an idol. And Jacob just holds her. And instead of trying to scheme and control things. It says in Genesis 30, uh, Jacob told Rachel... Look, Rachel, I'm not in the place of God. I'm not God. And he's the one who's doing this, and I, I cannot do anything. We cannot control this. I love you so much, but we cannot control the situation. And you see how God has quieted him and disciplined him and humbled him because all this discipline is about redemption and is about making our lives new and turning our lives around and liberating us and delivering us from our idols. And that's what we get to next with uh, the redemption of Leah. So we saw the discipline of Jacob. Now let's look at the redemption of Leah. To me, this is even more beautiful than the first part. Um, The way that God brings his kingdom through Leah, not Rachel. Nor the two servants, uh, but only through Leah. Which is, she is uh, as a, if you you know the Jesus, Jesus storybook Bible, a lot of kids love that. Um. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's about how every single passage in the Bible is about Jesus. And the one on Leah is really beautiful. It's called The Girl That No One Wanted. The Girl That No One Wanted. Uh, because this is a woman who is married to a man who not only does not love her, that's painful enough, he doesn't love her, but this man is also in love with her sister. That's, that is like unimaginable pain. For that to be the case. Um, I can't think of much worse than that. Where uh, she is married to a man sleeping with her sister. In verse 30 it says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. A very powerful short statement that Moses is making. Moses the writer of Genesis. It's a strong critique of polygamy by the way. The Bible doesn't just come out and say polygamy is wrong. It does it much more subtly by telling all these stories about the devastation of polygamy. Polygamy. But in the very beginning in the garden, it's clearly between a man, one man and one woman, Adam and Eve. And everything else besides that goes wrong. Uh, you see that all over the Bible with King Solomon, King David, Abraham, and now here in Jacob especially. But it says he loved Rachel more than Leah. And so Leah is plunged into this nightmare of yearning uh, to be alluring, to be captivating, to be beautiful. And every single child she has is another heartbreaking plea to her husband, please love me. Please finally adore me and look at me the way that I want you to look at me. Reuben's name is literally seen. Simeon's name is heard and Levi means attached. So basically she's saying when she gave birth to Reuben, now he's going to see me, finally going to look at me, finally going to love me, adore me. Then Simeon's born Now he's finally going to hear me. He's going to listen to me when I talk to him. He's not just going to turn away and start looking at my sister. And then Levi is the saddest of all. Now he'll be attached to me. Now I will have him attached to me. And this is the impact of, well, it's the impact of the the empire that we live in and the idol of romance and beauty um, where the empire says she's not worth looking at. You know she's got no value because she's got no physical beauty, and that lie has done massive damage throughout the history of the world. But even more so today. I mean, how? Who of us have not been impacted by that lie—that our value is based on our physical beauty and our fitness? And that lie is wreaking havoc here, even in a culture where it wasn't all about fitness, it wasn't all about physical beauty. We're much more that way. And that that lie has wreaked havoc on all of us. Definitely has on me. And God says, no, it's not about that. It's about being the mother of my kingdom. She's going to be the one who will be the mother of my kingdom. It will be through her that my kingdom will come. Because after her fourth child, so after the first three, her fourth child now, Judah, after decades of suffering... I don't know where along the line she realized it, but at some point the idol fell. And she says in verse 35, now later she falls back into these illusions. So it doesn't, it's not a once for all thing. But in some critical way, the idol has fallen here. And she says, This time, verse 35, this time, after this birth, I'm not going to want, I'm not asking for Jacob's affection. I'm asking that you be praised, Lord. Verse 35, this time I will praise the Lord. Because Judah means. Yada means praise. So in other words, this time it's not about her being seen or heard or approved of by your boyfriend, your husband, whatever it is. This time it's about praising the Lord. This time I will praise the Lord. This child is about God. You know, not my face, not my clothes, not my body, not my boyfriend, only God, my creator. That's all that matters. That's what matters in the kingdom. And, and God wants her to be the one not Rachel, but her, to be the one through whom the kingdom will come. She is the headwaters of the kingdom. She is the, she is the source of the Nile of the kingdom. Because from the child of praise, from Judah, the scepter will not depart. Jacob actually makes that prophecy later on in life. He tells, uh, he tells Judah, from you the scepter will never depart. You are like a lion. And we know that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so, this is the one that the kingdom comes through. Through Leah, through Judah, and then through Jesus. Verse 31 says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. And that, the first time I read that, I thought, that's kind of like a consolation prize. That's some kind of bargaining, I I didn't really like it. But I read a commentary that said, no, it's about this, uh, it's not a consolation prize. It's It's the deep empathy. That she and God feel for each other. It's this bond that they have. This special bond. Because we know that God was also unwanted. God is also despised and rejected. When the king of kings came, we, we realized, we saw that he was the king who was unwanted. So in Isaiah 53.3, imagine, imagine Leah hearing these words. Isaiah prophesying about this king that's coming. Hundreds of years later, this is Isaiah who is writing a prophecy about the king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the seed of Leah. And this is what it says in Isaiah 53.3. It's absolutely incredible. It says that he was despised and rejected by men as one from whom men hide their faces. We esteemed him not. And if anything is a critique of physical beauty, it's that statement. As one from whom we hide our faces, we esteemed him not. He is the Messiah. I mean, I don't know what he looked like physically, but this would lead me to believe he was not a handsome man. That Jesus was not, uh, was it Jim Caviezel who played him in the past? You know, he's not, he doesn't look like that. He doesn't look like the guy in The Chosen who plays him. I'm sorry, I like The Chosen, but if you've seen that miniseries, that guy's pretty handsome. This guy was despised, rejected, and we hid our faces from him. We esteemed him not. And so God says to the girl who no one wanted, the Messiah will come through you. And this is what uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones says. She's the one who wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I'll finish with this. Um, It says, when God saw Leah, he saw a princess, and one of her children became the Prince of Heaven, who would love God's people. They wouldn't need to be beautiful for him to love them, they would become beautiful because he loved them. And so uh, this is the king of, uh, of, the, of the misfit toys. You know, if you've seen that, uh, the island of misfit toys, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Uh, I'm getting some thumbs up. This, this is the, uh, the table of misfits, of unwanted people, of the despised, of the rejected, of those who are not esteemed by the world. God highly values.